0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new session of MEMCAS. I have Dr. Samboya with me today, one of our rheumatology consultants here at the Leicester Royal Infirmary. Dr. Samboya is going to guide us through on how to approach history taking and examination in a patient with presumed vasculitis or connective tissue disease. Hello, Dr. Samboya. I'm going to talk about how to approach abnormal bloods that you've um, run for a patient with suspected rheumatic disease. Say, for example, you've done an ANA, it's significant titer. What I regard as a significant titer would be anything more than one in 160 or higher than that. So one in 320, one in 2000, anything of that magnitude really would be considered a significant ANA. Or if you run an ANCA result and patient comes back with either a PR-free positive ANCA or MPO positive ANCA, what do you do with that? So the easiest approach I find for anyone that's a budgeting rheumatologist or having some interest in rheumatology or for the registrar or the acute take is to use what I call the glove and sweater approach. It refers to a group of questions that you can ask, questions that you can easily track and easily remember on the acute take or on the ward or in the clinical setting if you suspect that they may have an autoimmune rheumatic disease. So what is the glove and sweater approach? It's a method I, I put together to make life easy for People to ask questions. So it's like wearing gloves and a sweater on a winter's day. So, as with every form of medical history for a patient, you need to always allow the patient to tell you the history. The patient has the tools to know what they've been struggling with symptom wise. Just allow the patient to tell you the history. Let them tell you everything if they have. Let them go through all the bits, and you will be able to arrive at the diagnosis after you've heard the story and examined. If you're no closer to arriving, at a diagnosis after history and examination, then you would find that the investigations will cause some confusion and some concern. So is sort to approach, you're wearing a glove. The glove questions that you would ask are smelling and pain in the small hand joint. So we're talking about the metacarpophalangeal joints, the MCPs as we like to call it, or the proximal interphalangeal joints. Now, I would not mention the DIPJ joints because the DIPJs, that's the distal interphalangeal joints, are often involved in osteoarthritis. It can be involved in psoriatic arthritis. But realistically, if it is going to be involved in cirrhotic arthritis, there will be an element of swelling in those instances. So we're talking about small hand joint involvement in the MCPs and PIPJs. If the patient has pain and swelling, obviously those are tumor and color and all the other signs of inflammation obviously come to the fore when you're talking about it. So duller and tumor, two of the cardinal signs of inflammation, if they are involved in the hands, that allows you to suspect that there's inflammation going on in that hand. Now, these patients will struggle to make a fist, so you might ask them, are you able to make a fully clenched fist? If they can't, then that tells you you should look at that hand, and if they can't do it on the examination, then that, that's one of the pointers. But since we're still talking about history now, I'll talk about the examination bits when we get there. So they can't make a fist, they have swelling, and pain in the small hand joints, that's relevant. Another um, block question you can ask is about Raynaud's. Now, for Raynaud's, for me, the starting point has to be white Remember that for Raynaud's, it's an hyper exaggerated response to cold temperature in motion or certain external stimuli, which could involve drugs as well. So the pipes or the vessels supplying the hands, it goes vasospastic. So going vasospastic means that the digital tips of the fingers become white. Now, once there's vasospasm, blood supply is compromised to to the digits, and then the digits from white become cyanose because of the lack of oxygen supply. And then from being cyanosed, you get that blue discoloration. Then on return of circulation, you get red. So that's what we describe as a triphasic pattern of Raynaud's. That's white going to blue, return of circulation, red. You can have biphasic Raynaud, where you can have white, then return of circulation. You can have uniphasic Raynaud's, where it's just permanently blue. So imagine a scenario where a patient comes to your clinic with permanently blue fingers. That is Raynaud's, because the room is obviously going to be well heated and the digits being permanently blue. That would be unifacic Raynaud. Those are two questions you asked for the glove. The third question would be a hand rash. Again, you may wish to ask this or you may defer that to the examination because if there is a hand rash, you'd be able to see it whilst you haven't chat with the patient. So you may not necessarily ask about it. Lupus can have a hand rash and conditions such as polymyositis and dermatomyositis may have a hand rash. What's the difference? A lupus rash tends to be interphalangeal. That's in between the MCPs and PIPJs, and in between PIPJs and DIPJs. The rash of dermatomyositis tends to be on the dorsal aspect of the pips and MCPs, where they're called cochlear papules. So we're done with the gloves. The patient has worn their gloves on a one week day So you don't necessarily need to cram these questions into your memory. If you remember gloves, then it allows you to to follow a pattern. Now it's time to wear your sweater. So wearing your sweater, long sweater, you pop your arms, forearms, into the sweater, and the sweater goes over your head. And if it's a long sweater, when, apart from going, over the belly goes to the top of the thighs as well. So that's the format we're going to follow and that's the stream I wanted to follow. So arms, so what we concern ourselves with in rheumatology is proximal muscle weakness. Now remember, proximal muscle weakness, the key questions are difficulty lifting arms above your head, washing your hair, combing your hair, difficulty lifting things off the top shelf, that would be very relevant. And for proximal muscle weakness of the legs, which you can ask at this point in time so that you can just link it together will be difficulty climbing stairs, difficulty standing up from the seat without the arms, difficulty getting off the toilet seat, which is relevant because for the toilet seat, you can't necessarily put your arms on any rest. So it's very relevant. Patient to struggle with that, that sort of clinches that there might be an element of proximal muscle involvement. Distal muscle involvement, we don't necessarily concern ourselves with, but again, if there's distal involvement, you would expect proximal involvement. If there's just distal involvement with no proximal involvement, then you wouldn't necessarily be panicked that there's anything you're missing. So you done with arms and forearms and it's now time for the hair. Now hair. What's key about the hair is that you should ask about hair loss. Oftentimes I find when I ask patients in clinic if they've had hair loss, people obviously yes. So you need to make sure you scrutinize that symptom quite prolifically. You need to ask, do you wake up with blocks of hair on your pillow? Now that's a very relevant issue. If you're denuding hair on your pillow every morning, that's clearly abnormal. So I'm not really fussed about dead hair falling out when you wash your hair or you're combing your hair because a bit of trauma hair falls out. That's not really relevant. But denuding hair on the pillow in the morning, that's relevant. So that's what you need to ask about. Or a woman seeing bald patches at all. Again, that's relevant. I often say to students that if you can see a woman's scalp, there's a problem. So make sure you you try and um, evaluate that in detail. So we're done with the hair eyes. So eyes, what do you want to know about the eyes? You want to know about difficulty looking at bright light as a result of pain. That's relevant. So pain and photophobia suggest uveitis Now oftentimes you, you may get the fibromyalgia patient talking about difficulty looking at bright lights just for the sake of that. That's not really relevant. What I want is photophobia in, the con- in conjunction with pain. That suggests uveitis and it makes sense because when the iris or the uveal tract is inflamed, as it contracts, as light gets through the apertures, it hurts. That's really what you want to know about. Or it could just be redness in the eyes from episcleritis, and there's no pain. The way to make the distinction is: episcleritis is erythema without pain. So E goes with E is an easy memory aid I always teach to my students in the medical school. That's a good way to remember it. Don't forget dry eyes for the eyes. Very relevant. Oftentimes, you may ask a patient, "Do you have dry eyes?" And they may say, "Yes." You have to make sure you scrutinize the symptom a bit more. Ask them about. Do they need drops if they're using eye drops for dry eyes? That's relevant. And ask them about the feeling of grittiness in the eyes, like sand being poured in the eyes. Again, very relevant because you don't necessarily get that grittiness in the eyes if your eyes are not pathologically dry. But if they are pathologically dry, it feels like someone has poured a handful of sand into your eyes. And that's clearly distinct from driving on a winter's day and the heating is on full blast on your eyes and you might get a feeling of your eyes being sore anyway. So that's clearly distinct. So make that distinction quite clearly. So we're done with the eyes. Dry eyes, you may want to link it with dry mouth at this point in time. Oftentimes when I ask patients about dry mouth, some patients say yes. So you need to scrutinize that as well. You need to ask, do you have to take sips of water with each spoonful of food? That's relevant. If they say no, you move on. You regard that as a negative response and you move on. Again, some patients might be chatting with you and you can tell that they are smarting every and again because the tongue is dry and it's stuck to the roof of the mouth. That is obviously the dry mouth. In the examination, what you can do is when you do look into the mouth, make sure when the tip of the tongue is lifted to the roof of the mouth, check that you can see a nice salivary pool. If you see a nice salivary pool under the tongue with bubbles, that suggests that there's adequate saliva production. It, it's it's not the most objective way, but it's a good way of deciding if you need to, to do things like maybe stimulated salivary flow or stimulated salivary flow uh, assessment. Because oftentimes patients with chogans, once they lift the tongue to touch the roof of the mouth, it's dry and you can't see anything under the tongue. And that tells you that uh, it's probably compromised salivary flow to some extent. So you're done with the eyes, you out about dry eyes and dry mouth if you want to link it together. Probably a good idea to link it together anyway because they often tend to look together. Nose. Nosebleeds, and it's obvious why you're asking about nosebleeds because of vagueness. Vagueness glandular causes nose bleeds. Ask about crusting. Do you have clots of blood falling out of the nose or crusts, bloody clots when you blow the nose? Relevant or changing shape. Now, changing shape of the nose, again, you may not necessarily want to ask because ideally you probably be able to see the change in shape. And if you notice a change in shape, ask the patient if it's new. You don't want to be embarrassed by finding out the patient had nose trauma you've assumed that is a change in shape. So you have to be quite astute and detective-like, as I always say to my students, so that you capture problems that are truly new and um, you don't make a big deal out of anything that isn't new. So nosebleeds, crusting in the nose. You can also ask about chronic sinusitis. That, that may be relevant, but be careful. Some people may have chronic sinusitis as a result of allergies and may not necessarily mean much. So mouth, you've asked about dry mouth early on. You can ask about ulcers in the mouth. Now, be very mindful that when it comes to ulcers in the mouth, if patients have had ulcers for many, many years, that could just represent afters ulcers, which affects 5% of healthy individuals. So after ulcers, I'm not fussed about, but any history of new ulcers populating the mouth several days of the week, that's relevant. That's clearly abnormal. So you want to be mindful of that. Why is that relevant? If you have ulcers in the mouth and you have ulcers in genitals, that makes you think of Behcet's syndrome. So be very, very mindful of that. Some authors would like to call it Behcet's disease. But again, whichever way, school of thought you swing, whether it's a syndrome or a disease, your guess is as good as mine. So ulcers in the mouth are also relevant for lupus. Lupus ulcers can tend to be on the half-palate. They tend to be painless. But I think the distinction between painless and painful ulcers are not really clearly demarcated because ulcers are allowed to be painful, especially if it starts off being painless and it becomes abraded because of food or objects in the mouth. You're allowed to have painful ulcers. So I'm not really fussed about the pain on the half-palate or not, but the presence of ulcers that is new and continuous. It is, is a big deal. I often ask students, when was the last time you had a mouth ulcer? People often can't remember, and if they do remember, the episodes are well spaced apart. So if you're having someone having frequent ulcers which isn't like them, that's the problem. So bear that in mind. So ulcers in the mouth, Asked about ulcers of the nose as well. That's relevant. Nasal ulcers are not common. So if you have nasal ulcers, that's a big deal. Also, just to Quick recap, on the face, you can ask about facial rash, but to be honest, you'd be able to see a facial rash. If you can't see a facial rash, then maybe you shouldn't be taking the history from the patient anyway. that's, That's what I always jokingly say. So your sweat is now coming up down your face, neck. So neck, I always like to ask about choking when you eat. Why is this relevant? This is relevant because of pharyngeal muscle involvement for myositis. So dermatomyositis or polymyositis, it can cause pharyngeal muscle involvement. And these patients, they notice a very subtle sign of choking when they eat food or drink water. Very relevant. And why do I remember this distinctly? Because a patient I saw, I think second year into my registrar life, she was referred for suspected dermatomyositis. Because she didn't have a rash, we weren't necessarily convinced that that was the case, but it transpired that she had been choking when she took meals and that was relevant because obviously pharyngeal muscle involvement tells you that it could be a precursor to respiratory involvement. So very, very important that you ask that. So neck, choking when they eat, drink, very important, because that points you towards the inflammatory myositis. So also on the neck, you, can want, you may want to ask about lumps. Some patients with lupus can have cervical lymphopathy, but cervical lymphopathy, be weary about malignancy. The funny thing about malignancy is malignancy can mimic autoimmune ratic disease, and autoimmune erratic disease can mimic malignancy. It's a question of which will kill the patient first, and you know malignancy has to be excluded. So always have your Index of suspicion highly tuned to, to be sure that you're not dealing with a malignancy state. But also, always bear that in mind. So, we're done with the neck. Chest. So, for the chest, you want to ask about cirrhosis Any inflammation of the cirrhosis. So, for if it's pericardial pain, the vision may have pain in the center of the chest. It worsens when they lie flat and it gets better when they sit forwards. You have to ask those questions in detail. Patients may say they have chest pain, but they may not necessarily be able to tell you the pattern. You need to decipher the pattern that is it worse when you're lying and as you get up, it gets better because the patient may tell you, I wake up in pain. Well, when I then I have to get up and catch my breath, go to the window, then you decipher that it's the change in posture that helped the pain. Make sure you make that distinction or when they get pain at the sides of the chest, that suggests pleural pain what we call a pleuritis, which patients with lupus can have as well, that is relevant. So ask about pain when they take deep breaths in. And um, pleural pain would linger on and on. It's not the kind of pain it will get in the morning and by night time or after it's gone. Not, none of that. So chest, pericardial pain, pleural pain, you've asked. Then belly pain, you won't ask about that because peritoneal inflammation, lupus, doesn't happen often, but it can have pain, especially the meals. But again, you want to be careful you're not dealing with gallstone-related pain causing pain after meals or peptic ulceration type pain. So be clear to make that distinction. But Oftentimes with peptic ulceration or gallbladder related pain, they wouldn't have other features to suggest an autoimmune disease or vasculitis. So your sweater now has gone over your belly. And if it's a long sweater, at least we get to half of the thigh. So you ask at this point, if you haven't asked about proximal muscle weakness, ask about it. Also on the legs, you want to ask about pins and needles, paresthesia affecting the lower legs, all the arms, very important. Because obviously, patients with either connected to disease or vasculitis may have involvement of the nerves, like a mononeuritis multiplex type feature. So you need to be able to spot that. So obviously, also on the legs, you ask about rash, but you'll be able to see a rash, or that might be the primary complaint the patient has. And what kind of rash are we talk about? Palpa bupipuric rash. Now that's different from the non-palpable rash that comes on with a fever, which obviously should suggest an angitis. We're talking about a palpable purpure crash that may not have excited fever and obviously has lasted several days. You can't have meningitis an for several days and are not look chronically or desperately unwell. So you have to bear that in mind. It's all about the history and making sure everything fits and don't struggle to make the history fit. Listen to what the patient is saying and try and fit it in. So that's the history taking, And global sweater Approach is also valid for the examination as well. So you've done your history and when you're doing your examination, you can go through the same sequence of examination. So for the hands, look out for inclination in the hands. Ask the patient to fully make a fist. If they can't make a fist, that tells you that there's MCP and PIBJ involvement. Check for proximal muscle weakness. See if you can oppose them when they abduct AD, uh, abduct rather, AB, abduct the uh, upper, upper arms, like a chicken wing, I like to call it. See if you can oppose them. If you can oppose them, there's probably weakness in proximal muscles. Hair, check for hair loss. If you can see a scalp, like I said, or a rash, maybe a scarring rash of discoid lupus. Have a look at the eyes. Is it red? Is it not red? If they've complained about photophobia with bright lights, you can test that with maybe a pen torch. Be kind to the patient. Or they might not be very happy with you shining bright light into a UBIT guy. Nose, see if there's any subtle nasal change or change in shape or nasal perforation. Or if you can see obvious crosses by looking up, with a pen touch, but that might be better left to an ENT position. But again, be sure to look at that. Mouth, observe the mouth, look at the half palate, look at the uvula. You may see ulcers there. So, chest, see if you can feel the pleural rub or peripatal rub. So, have a good listen, Belly, examine them to make sure that there's no rigidity or guarding. But you shouldn't really have rigidity or guarding because if you do. You should be more worried about an acute abdomen. But the belly may, may be painful or may not be painful, depending on how the severity of the symptom. And obviously, when you're checking the legs, make sure you look out for a rash. And check dosiflexion. The amount of times I've had junior doctors, have asked, oh, do they have nerve involvement? And they told me no. And I approached the patient, I find that they've lost dosiflexion, which suggests a foot drop. It's, it's too numerous to count. Very important that you check that. And that could be a sign that um, they have organ-threatening, vasculitis, or CTD. And you really need to be talking about more potent immunosuppression. And that is the glove and sweater approach. I hope it all makes sense. And any further queries, you can let me know and we can address it. Thank you. Thank you.